Yes, thank you very much. As we stand, let's uh, pray, shall we? And ask that the Lord would speak to us. Lord, we've uh, sung this morning already, send forth your word and let there be light. And we pray as uh, I preach, as we listen, that we would indeed have light, light to understand you, uh, light to uh, love you more and love one another more. Uh, This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do please uh, take a seat. Um, If you have a Bible, uh, you might like to open it to uh, that passage we had earlier read, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You can find it on page uh, 1153 if uh, uh, that's helpful for you. Uh, There's an old story told about uh, the atheist philosopher uh, Nietzsche. Uh, Apparently he was uh, one day talking with a Christian friend and uh, his friend was trying to persuade him to become a Christian, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Nietzsche apparently replied, I might be prepared to believe in your Redeemer if I saw that his followers looked a bit more redeemed. I heard that quote uh, a long time ago and I've often wondered whether what was stopping Nietzsche was the fact that so often So many Christians, the church throughout history has often looked so divided and so unloving. Uh, It's a far cry, isn't it, from our Lord's instructions that we've just heard read, to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Uh, This morning we are breaking uh, into our series uh, on uh, going through the book of Kings uh, to take up our occasional series that we've been doing at communion services, looking at different aspects of our vision statements. Right on the back of the wall of the meeting place, we've got our vision statements, what we aspire to be with God's help as a church. Uh, This week we are looking at that middle one, uh, a church that is loving, loving uh, one another. Uh, Sadly, the church in Corinth, to whom Paul uh, is uh, writing, uh, were especially unloving to one another. We don't quite know what the full situation was, particularly with uh, St. Paul's letters. It's a bit like one half of a telephone conversation. We've got one half, and we don't know what the rest is. Uh, So we sort of piece things together. But it seems, from what uh, St. Paul uh, addresses in his letter to the Corinthians, that they were particularly unloving. They were falling out, they were following different uh, spiritual leaders, different preachers, they were falling out over uh, um, what to do about uh, sexual morality, uh, about uh, spiritual gifts, uh, and about uh, you know, food and, uh, and, and sacrificing to idols and things like that. And in the middle of addressing the issue of spiritual gifts, we get this chapter, perhaps one of the most famous chapters in the New Testament, a call to love one another. I guess for most of us, the last time we heard this was probably in a wedding, I suspect. I think it was true for me, anyway, the last time I heard this, uh, this uh, passage read. It's a wonderful passage, isn't it? And it's rightly popular and famous. And yet, if we read it carefully, it's not really a hymn to love at all. It's actually a rebuke. Paul hasn't got confused. He hasn't suddenly sandwiched a wedding sermon in the middle of uh, his letter to Corinthians. He hasn't got lost. It is a rebuke to a church that actually is far from loving. They are immature, and they're not loving one another, as they should be. Uh, I've got three headings uh, this morning just to, uh, to guide us through as we, uh, we look through it. The first one is that love always has priority. Love always has priority. Look with me from uh, verses 1 through to 3. St. Paul says this. 
If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Uh, If I were to ask you uh, what might distinguish a church that had sort of made it to the church's Premier League, you know, the spiritual, most spiritual church you could think of, I wonder what qualities you would pick up on. Uh, Maybe you'd think about some thriving children's work, you know, maybe there'd be hundreds of under-twelves gathering to uh, to, uh, be taught the scriptures. Uh, Maybe you'd think about inspiring worship, perhaps, you know, worship that's uplifting. You just can't help but feel exalted when you... uh, you uh, listen to it and uh, take part in it. Perhaps you think about the excellent coffee, maybe, or the fact that there's uh, jammy dodges after the service. Maybe you might even think that the preaching is quite thoughtful and it inspires you. I don't know. There's a hope, isn't there? They're all good things, aren't they? All good things. All good things to have at a church, and we rightly uh, want to, to look out for those. And yet, did you notice, they don't make it into St. Paul's list. They're not the most important thing for St. Paul in defining a healthy church. The thing that St. Paul says is the chief mark of a healthy church is not good coffee, it's not thriving children's work, it's not even good preaching or good house groups. It is love. Love takes priority. It seems, as I said, that the Colossians were getting particularly excited, sorry, Corinthians even, were getting particularly excited by the fact that many of them had uh, spiritual gifts, gifts of uh, speaking in tongues, uh, uh, gifts of prophecy. And from that, they were concluding that they had sort of spiritually arrived. If they were a church where they were functioning like that, they were on some kind of higher plane. And yet, St. Paul says that to speak in tongues and not have love is just noise, isn't it? Verse 1, if I speak in tongues of men, of angels, but have not love... I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Uh, likewise, he says, without love, even a gift of prophecy or a storehouse of theological knowledge is worth little. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, uh, it all adds to nothing. Uh, perhaps even more surprising, he goes on, he says, we could have a great faith, a faith that moves mountains. Uh, we could be devoted to good charitable deeds. Uh, We could even be submitting to persecution and hardship for the sake of the Lord Jesus. And yet, without love, we gain nothing. There's no substitute for it. Love always takes priority, no matter what. They're difficult words to hear, aren't they, I think, as we uh, read these words. And yet, it's nothing new. If we trace it through uh, the Bible, the Bible always says that whilst we look on the outside, God looks on the heart. He looks uh, on the heart. Uh, In the Old Testament, repeatedly, the prophets were warning the people of the danger of of, of looking good on the outside, conforming to God's instructions outwardly, but inwardly being far from him. You only have to read Isaiah and uh, many of the other prophets, and you see that comes up time and time again. Think of Jesus in his ministry. Jesus constantly... Uh, attack the Pharisees and the, the religious leaders. Uh, on the outside, they looked pious. Uh, they, they, they could keep the law. And yet they refused to come to him for salvation. 
their hearts were far from him. At every turn, the Bible is more interested in a right heart than simply right deeds. Uh, many of us, I guess, will have had that experience of uh, picking a, what appears to be a nice juicy piece of fruit from the fruit bowl, biting into it and discovering that it's rotten right at the core. I'm sure you'll uh, have had that experience. Uh, sadly, it's all too common, I think, to find churches that are a little bit like that. They look shiny and nice and juicy on the outside, and yet when you start to get involved in them, you realise that it's not all that pleasant under the surface. I'm sure many of us can uh, have had that experience. Uh, maybe they are um, proud of their, their worship. They've got a big band, big organ. It all sounds good. And yet they're blind to the fact that they're not particularly welcoming to outsiders. Uh, maybe they boast of being sound in doctrine, having very, very solid preaching. And yet they care little about loving those outside the church who've yet to come to know the Lord Jesus. Perhaps they run a food bank. Uh, they're giving away... Uh, plenty of food to many people in need. And yet, were those recipients of the food bank to come and join their church, they couldn't quite fathom that. That would not be something they would like. Without love, all those things, however good they might be, all add up to nothing. We've got much to give thanks for here at Holy Trinity, as we've just seen on the, uh, the screen. Lots of good things going on. And yet it's easy to have a healthy appearance and to neglect what's at the heart. Our love for Christ, our first love, and our love for one another and for those outside uh, our walls. Whether it's in Corinth, whether it's in Norwich, love has priority. Second uh, heading for us. Uh, St Paul tells us that love follows a pattern. Love follows a pattern. Look with me at uh, verse 4 and following. He says this, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Paul has been rebuking the Corinthians for not putting love first in their church life. Uh, And now he starts to show them what it might look like practically. Uh, These are the verses, I guess, that often make us a bit misty-eyed at weddings, don't we? Uh, That sort of lump comes into the the throat as we read these words. And yet the love that Paul is speaking about here is not the love of a husband and wife, or even of friends and family. Uh, It it is different to that. It is a sacrificial love that is determined to give everything for the good of others, regardless of how much it costs. Uh, I'm sure you'll know that um, Greek is a very, very rich and precise language, um, it, it far more so than English. Is. We have, uh, you know, love covers lots of things uh, in our language. We could have love for friends, we can have love for our, our spouses, we could have love for our family, we can have brotherly love as Christians. The Greeks were very, very precise. And they had lots of different words, depending on the exact nuance. Uh, In fact, they had four different words for love. And the word that is used in this passage is agape love. Agape is all the way through it, if you were to trace it. Uh, It is love that, I guess, is a conscious choice. It's not an emotion. It's a choice, a decision to, to love others sacrificially, 
whatever the cost that might be to us personally. Uh, It is, in fact, the word that the New Testament uses to describe Jesus' love for us, that love that knew uh, no bounds, the love that surrendered the privileges of heaven to come to earth to die on a lonely cross for we, the people who had rejected him. Uh, St. Uh, John says, doesn't he, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is agape love. In short, we could sum it up, that agape love is to love like Jesus. Uh, to help the uh, Corinthians think this through, uh, Paul lists, uh, I think, about 15 qualities of this uh, Christian love. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of them. I just want to select one or two for us to, uh, to uh, think about this morning. Uh, The first one uh, I want to just focus on is that he says that this Christian love should be patient. So that in verse 4, doesn't he? The very first one, love is patient. Uh, Patience comes in many different ways, doesn't it? We can be patient with lots of things. Maybe you're patient with Royal Mail whilst uh, you've you've got something coming in the post and they hasn't quite arrived yet and you're sort of being patient with them and biding your time. Or maybe you can be uh, patient with circumstances, perhaps you're not very well, and you're sort of waiting for something to, uh, to, to get better. Uh, the, the context here that Paul is speaking about is patience with people. Uh, there was a church father called uh, Chrysostomum who uh, said that, that this word means it's somebody who has been wronged and yet they choose to let it go. They, they've had something, someone has done something to them and they could react but they're just choosing to let it drop and, and let it go. Uh, it is, in fact, I guess, the love that God has for us. That endless patience with his sinful people, the people who he's called to love, uh, to love him, and yet who are always failing him. It's that patient love, the love uh, that, uh, that is slow to anger and always abounding. Uh, I'm told that there's a tribe in uh, the South Seas that um, have a habit of encouraging their tribesmen and members to keep reminders of their hatreds. If you hate somebody, you might keep a reminder of something so that you uh, can nurse that hatred. So if you didn't like me, you might keep a cricket bat and you know, you'd store that up and remember, I hate Will and I don't like him very much, and this is a reminder of that. This is the complete opposite of that. It's that love that just says, look, I'm going to be patient with that person. I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed, but I'm going to let it go because I know that ultimately uh, God deals with things. It is love like God. It's love that's patient, it's slow to anger, and it's forgetting. It is patient love. Second quality, just to focus on from this uh, list of St. Paul's. Uh, Paul says that Christian love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. Verse uh, 6 for you. Uh, I guess most of us can probably recognise that, um, I suppose, slightly malicious pleasure, isn't it, in uh, the misfortunes of others. It's the thing that keeps the tabloids, tabloids going, doesn't it, in the celebrity newspapers. You've seen it, haven't you, in the, um, with, with the Rolf Harris case over the last sort of, fortnight, uh, the way that people have been eager for, for details, juicy details about this celebrity who's fallen uh, from his perch. Uh, it's that, that, that sort of that, that pleasure in the downfall of others. Uh, it's tragic when you see it in the world, isn't it? But it's especially unpleasant when you see it in the Christian community. Uh, It's all too often seen, sadly, I think, when we probably justify gossip by saying it's a prayer point for somebody. I'll just tell you this about somebody so you can be praying for them as they work through. We sort of justify it, don't we? And Actually, what we're really doing is taking pleasure in another person's misfortune, and we want other people to know about that. 
but we're trying to justify it by saying we're being super spiritual and we're helping them work through it. Uh, this is just something for you to know so that you can pray it through. And St. Paul says that is far from Christian love. Christian love isn't about enjoying uh, wrong and others' misfortunes and evil and delighting in other people's sin and downfall. It's the mark of Christian love to delight in truth, in God's truth. Uh, however difficult that might be, however uncomfortable it might end up seeming, however unattractive it might be compared to delighting in evil, we're called to delight in truth. Maybe we have heard these words at weddings and we've had a lump in the throat as we've heard them and thought how wonderful for this couple as they get married to uh, reflect on these things. It's not wrong, I think, to think that, but it would be wrong if we fail to recognise their searching power. They are a rebuke. This is what Christians, Christians should look like. Uh, reading through this list, I guess most of us can pinpoint a few areas uh, where we know that we've failed repeatedly, I'm sure. Uh, we recognise that we have not always loved one another in this way, in a sacrificial way, in the way that the Lord Jesus has loved us. Let's be praying, shall we, that Trinity would be a place where this pattern of love is seen. It wouldn't just be words that make us well up at a wedding, but it would be practical and we'd see it in our, um, our encounters with one another, in our relationships, in our daily lives together. Love that endures sacrificially for the good of others and rejoices in truth and not evil. That's the pattern of Christian love. Finally, and more briefly, uh, St. Paul tells us that love is permanent. Love is permanent. Let's look uh, from the end section, from verse 8 onwards. Uh, as many of you know, uh, last weekend I had my uh, second ordination. I was ordained before, don't worry, but that's the way the Church of England works. They ordain you as a deacon first, and then you have a year as a sort of the L plates on, and then uh, you're ordained as a presbyter or priest. Uh, and I was in the cathedral last week, and there was a, a quiet moment in the service, and I was just reflecting on how permanent the cathedral seemed. It was, you know, these giant pillars, and it seemed like it's been standing for uh, forever, and it would continue standing forever. These massive pillars, it's been standing for about a thousand years, I think, something like that. And yet, actually, if you study the history of Norwich Cathedral, uh, it hasn't proved to be that permanent. I think the original spire uh, caught fire, and they had to build another one. And there's been many times in its history where it hasn't seemed as permanent uh, as it does at the moment. Uh, despite its appearances, it's far from being uh, permanent. It won't be there forever, as wonderful as it might be. We've seen, haven't we, how the Corinthian Christians were placing a lot of emphasis on outward things, on these spiritual gifts, uh, tongues and prophecy. And I wonder if they were just tempted to think that if they possessed those gifts, that put them in the first rank. That gave them A star in the church's uh, rankings. And yet, Paul's final reminder to them is to watch out. It is to beware. Because what they value so highly actually will ultimately be found to be unnecessary. Verse 8, he says, Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. 
When I was a child, I taught like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, but we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Uh, When perfection comes, that is when the Lord Jesus comes in his glory, there will be no need for these tongues or prophecy that the Corinthians uh, value so highly, because we shall see him as he is, and we will be like him. There will be perfection. What will remain, says St. Paul, is love. Verse 8, love never fails. Again, verse 13, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Spiritual gifts, just like everything else, have a sell-by date. And that date is when the Lord Jesus returns. The one thing that remains is love. Did you notice that Paul uses two pictures uh, to uh, help us uh, understand this fact? Uh, The first one he uses is this picture of children growing up, which I think is is designed to encourage us in the Corinthians to to see that spiritual gifts just have a a fairly limited place, ultimately. Uh, Verse 11, when I was a child, I taught like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Uh, just as when children grow up, they uh, leave babbling and, uh, and sort of all those uh, childish things uh, behind. So one day, in good time, it will be the case that spiritual gifts uh, will be left behind. Paul's not saying that they're nonsense or anything like that. I don't think he's being derogatory in that sense. He's just saying that they have a place and a time. You know, nappies and cots are good in their time, but there'll be something strange if adults were uh, participating in that. It's completely unnecessary, isn't it? What's good for one time is not right for another. Secondly, he used this picture of a mirror, didn't he, in verse uh, verse 12. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Uh, However good a mirror we might have, it's not the same, is it, as seeing somebody face to face. That's particularly true for ancient mirrors. Ancient uh, mirrors were basically a shiny piece of metal. They'd buffed up as much as possible to try and make them shiny. They weren't really like our mirrors. They, they were sort of, they'd always give an imperfect reflection. And Paul is saying that if we think that we know God now, just wait until we see the Lord Jesus face to face when we're with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Nothing will compare with the glory that is to be revealed. Uh, again, one day, spiritual gifts will count for nothing because we will be with the Lord Jesus. We will see him as he is face-to-face, we will be changed from glory to glory to reflect his likeness. Those things that were appropriate for uh, our earthly time uh, will pass away. They will count for little. But what will abide is love. Whether it's uh, worship stars or buildings or uh, anything else like that, it's very easy, isn't it, for churches to focus on those uh, external things, those things that appear important in the moment, And yet, actually, when viewed from the perspective of eternity, are not that important. Uh, Above all, I think, Paul is reminding us that it's love that is truly permanent. It's love that abides, it's love that remains, and it's love that demands our attention. If love is indeed the thing that will remain when everything else passes away, I think it makes sense, doesn't it, just to think a little bit about uh, how love grows I think it should be a daily prayer of ours, shouldn't it, that we are growing 
in love, love for one another, love for the Lord Jesus, love for the world outside. It's only through the work of God in our hearts, through his word, by his spirit, that we will love like Jesus. Uh, We can't summon it up by ourselves. Uh, It has to be uh, the fruit of his spirit. And yet alongside that, we do have a responsibility, I think. Uh, Just as uh, if you were bodybuilding, if you were trying to build your muscles, uh, you won't get very far if you just stuff yourself with protein shakes and do uh, no weightlifting. It won't happen. You have to have both. You have to have the food, spiritual food, to build you up, but you also have to exercise. I think it's the same spiritually as well. If our love is going to grow, if our spiritual muscles are going to develop, we've got to exercise our love. Uh, we've got to put it to use, uh, build it up, in order that, it, uh, that it, uh, the Lord uh, can grow it. Um, we've had many opportunities, haven't we, already um, this morning, recent opportunities we've had at church to, to get involved in loving others. We've seen it, haven't we? Community games. Uh, we've got a holiday club uh, coming up. Um, we've uh, been involved in Who Cares? Many of us have been door knocking and, uh, and seeking to love um, one another and love our, our world around us. But there are plenty more opportunities to, to grow in love. Just a few for you to consider if you're uh, at a loss. Uh, perhaps you could love our students uh, next term. Uh, we've got, uh, we're very fortunate. We've got lots of students coming along to Trinity this year, which is really, really wonderful to see. Uh, but we need people to help uh, lead groups, uh, to, uh, to meet up with them, to read the scriptures one-to-one with them, to love them, to give them meals, uh, to help cook for them on Sunday evenings. Perhaps that's a way in which you could love them for that short time that they're with us at university and lay those foundations for a lifetime of following Jesus. Uh, maybe you could love our young people by helping out with Sunday groups. Uh, I know that our Sunday groups are, are really struggling for volunteers, particularly over the summer months when people uh, are away. Uh, that's a really wonderful way in which you could love our young people, uh, helping them lay foundations to, uh, to serve and love the Lord Jesus uh, for the rest of their lives. Maybe you could visit the housebound. We've got many people in our congregation who, uh, who can't get to church because they're unwell or they're just uh, unable to, uh, to get out because they're elderly, they haven't got transport. Uh, perhaps you could love them by going out and visiting. I'm sure they'd appreciate it. Someone to talk to, someone to pray with, someone to read the scriptures. Lots of ways in which we can love one another. Let's grow in love because love never fails. Love is permanent. As we close, I wonder, if uh, Nietzsche were to walk through the door at Holy Trinity... Is there anything here that would make him revise his opinion of uh, Christians? I wonder. Uh, Bishop Leslie Newbigin, the uh, famous missionary bishop, used to say that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. What he meant by that was basically the church is the way in which the gospel is understood and seen in, in the world. And how vital it is, therefore, if that's true, if we are the way that the world sees the gospel, then we are a church that loves We love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We love ourselves, uh, each other. We're always seeking uh, to show love to one another. We're loving the world outside. As we approach uh, the Lord's table, and we remember what he has done for us, how he has loved us uh, supremely in the cross, let's be praying, shall we, that God would be at work in us, to form us, to make us into a more loving church. Let's pray, shall we, as we uh, come towards the Lord's table. Well, we do uh, read this passage. Many of us have heard it at weddings. It's familiar words. And yet, Lord, 
we recognise that it is a rebuke. A rebuke to a church that has not loved. They don't love each other, they don't love you, and they don't love the world outside. And Lord, we pray that as we uh, come to your table, as we recall how you have loved us supremely at Calvary, we pray that we would be a church that loves, that we love you supremely, we love one another, and we love our world. Uh, Help us, we pray, we know we can't do it by ourselves. Uh, Stir up this gift of love in our hearts. Uh, Show us where you would have us serve. Uh, And may we indeed be a church uh, that reflects your likeness. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.